0: This is Ken Lubin, the host and founder of the Executive Athletes Podcast, and welcome to this week's episode. I want to thank everyone that's been listening, and thank you for the comments and feedback. They're awesome and an incredible help in this journey to making this podcast better and better each episode. Once again, this is unscripted and unedited, as I believe it is the best way to get to really know the guest. Welcome to this episode, and today we're mixing mixing things up a bit by having two guests, Um, changing sort of perspective. Usually we have one guest here, and this can be a little bit of fun, something a little bit different by having two, both based over in Europe. So we're going global for this one, guys, for all the
1: listeners.
0: (laughs) But um, the first guest is actually uh, a pretty interesting guy. He's over in the UK. His name is Tom Kingsley. And Tom leads Ernst & Young's sports industry group in the UK and has worked across Europe, the Middle East, and India on strategic engagements across the sporting landscape with clubs, leagues, governing bodies, and other rights holders, as well as sponsors and sport tech businesses. He also leads EY's global partnerships with the Rugby World Cup, as well as the Ryder Cup. Away from work, Tom spends his life with his wife and twin boys and can frequently be found either on a ski slope in the Alps, running in the countryside near his home in Essex, or managing his kids' football teams. Uh, Our second guest is David Rutherford, who many of you know that I work for ZRG Partners as well as part of my day job. And David actually joined us earlier uh, this year. And he's got 22 years in commercial commercial experience and leadership roles. David has a proven track record of delivering value across corporate, private and family enterprises with a focus on outcomes based performance. He's passionate about maximizing opportunities for skills development, as well as opportunities for young professionals within this prolonged period of change, which is crazy. And we're going to talk about right now, but in which multiple drivers are at play. these include policy direction, AI, and the changing nature of work in the workplace. Prior to joining ZRG, David was a market leader for EY's private business in the UK for three years, working with a broad array of clients and third-party platforms. His work included key themes such as growth strategy, digital transformation, and productivity improvement. He's actually held prior positions with BT Synturgia, American Express, and Relics. David's a huge sports fan and pursues personal fitness and well-being. So we've got two guys who are the ultimate executive athletes here. Understand the market, and we'll see some uh, other perspectives. Which is a crazy time out there. But David and Tom, you know, we'd love to hear about you know each of you from each of you. So Tom, let's start off.
2: Thanks, Ken, and. I guess first thing to say uh as a former colleague of David I didn't actually know that you'd, you'd work with Rolex David so there you go it's good to learn something <laughs> new um great Rolex I think sport. it was not Rolex Rolex, Rolex.
1: Rolex yeah oh Rolex oh goodness yeah. me sorry right well there you go Off to a cracking if it was start. Rolex you would always yeah. have some free Rolexes yeah I'd have been I'd have been yeah, exactly. shaking my uh, shaking my watch at the screen Thomas. <laughs>
2: exactly that will explain why I'd never heard of it I Heard heard, <laughs> heard that one um Anyway, um, uh, enough about David. Um, so <laughs> he can introduce himself in a minute. Um, so yes, yeah, so my 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 um my kind of pathway into this role at EY uh, comes about. So I spent I spent uh, a good few years working in law firms uh, on a kind of com- com- broad commercial, but kind of business development and and communications. And then um, in in uh, twenty ten um we were living in dubai my wife was posted over there with her with her organization and um i answered a call from uh from a recruiter to to join ey as the marketing director for the middle east so um so that was that was i think that was 2010 yeah early 2010 so i've been at ey now for 10 years and in that time i spent the first couple of years with ey in the middle east where i was the marketing I led the marketing function. Indeed, I was the marketing function for the first three or four months of that time. Um, Then in late 2012, um, as a family, we moved back to the UK. And I was moving into um, into an EMEA-focused marketing role with EY. And shortly before getting on the plane to come home, I took a call which kind of changed my life. So the call came from the then head of EMEA marketing um, for EY. And he said uh, the following. He said, we've just signed a deal with the European tour to sponsor the Ryder Cup in 2014. Um, and... I know that you understand sponsorship and I know that you love sports. So wondered if, as you're going to be part of my leadership team, uh, uh three weeks from now, if you would like to take on that, uh, as your, as your, as well as project. So after approximately three nanoseconds, the answer was clear. Um, so I, um, that was in 2012. So I spent the next two years running, um, EY's global sponsorship of the Ryder Cup the, the one that took place at Glen Eagles in 2014 and during that journey uh, I guess I became known internally as the guy who does the sports stuff um, to an extent that um, probably midway through 2013 I took another call internally which was oh we're just starting to talk to um, to the World Rugby organization uh about possibly doing a deal to sponsor the 2015 rugby world cup which was obviously going to be in england and wales can you help so i helped out on that in terms of the negotiation and then um sort of seamlessly moved into the activation side of that so for three and a half or so years uh when i first got back to the uk i was effectively from a sports marketing perspective running ey's um global sponsorship programs the biggest things that EY had ever done in sport at the time um from a sponsorship side of things um and then as that was kind of drawing to a close uh it was another kind of crossroads um because there weren't EY hadn't actually done any more deals to the sponsor sport it's only in big terms so I had a kind of bit of decision to make so I approached um David's boss in the UK uh, who was the head of business development and effectively pitched the proposition that um, having spent three years running around the firm getting to know what was going on around the sports world um, it was clear that there was a significant opportunity for us to get involved in um, providing services to solutions to helping sports clients develop their business and to grow their business um, and uh the answer was that sounds fantastic off you go you better get on with it because that sounds brilliant so um so that was probably l- late 2015 early 2016 it was that point that i started to get to know david um as he was a sort of key member of the of the uk business development team and since then uh we've been building um a sports practice Uh, uh, within EY that kind of caters that now across certainly across Europe in the Middle East India and Africa uh, last time I counted I think we cover 18 or 19 different sports we have uh, somewhere in the region of 200 people across that region delivering actively delivering uh, projects into sports clients Uh, we have grown the business at least threefold in that time Uh, and we've worked right across the ecosystem, both in the core for rights holders and, um, for some of the world's biggest corporations and some of the, you know, and, and, and many governments around how they interact with sport. So that's my journey to today. Nice.
0: And David, tell us a little bit about your journey and how you ended up where you are now.
1: So, yeah, so, um, I'd love to set up work for Rolex. And if anyone's listening, I (laughs) love your products, but, uh, no, I've, I've worked, and, and Ken, first of all, thanks, thanks for the invite. Great that Tom and I can, can join you today and, and talk about, you know, the intersection of business and social issues and sport, which I'm I'm hugely interested in and kind of passionate about. So, so yeah, I've, I've worked for 20-odd years in various sales and then commercial leadership positions latterly with, with EY, a great company to work for. And, you know, as you can see with Tom, great, great people there. Um, and I've always just been really interested in in sort of using technology and using great people. kind of great great outcomes for for society and the people involved and that was one of the reasons for coming to ZRG Um, and then also um, you know working with Tom over the last couple of years it's been really noticeable that the intersection of kind of sport health well-being technology and now coming through the COVID pandemic you know lots of interest as to you know how can we how can we use the power of sport coming out of this in terms of fitness and well-being as as you said in, in your kind intro so I think those intersections are, are incredibly interesting and powerful. And, and dare I say, as we go forward, I, I think their value is going to go up. So I think it's a really timely set of things to talk about. And, and clearly lots of press in all media is talking about the return of sport and what will it mean and what could it mean from, from the grassroots right the way through. So, yeah, I think we can have a great dialogue about it today.
0: No, and Tom, so, you know, you are a leader, you know, you're leading the sports industry group in the UK and Europe and in EMEA or in India as well. What are you seeing during this whole pandemic? Where do you see it going? Where do you, you know, where are you seeing the market? It's because it's crazy everywhere. I know here in the States, it's, you know, it's crazy and uncertain. What's it like over there?
2: Well, straight in with a big question, Ken. Just <laughs> know. to No warm-up. <laughs> um no it's i mean it's it's a fascinating time to be part of the part of the industry because i think i think what what we've seen over this period is is just how relevant sport is to vast numbers of people's lives um you know the fact that every single kind of conversation that takes place largely is based around, you know, when do I get to play golf again? When do I get to start doing that again? When do I get to go and watch a soccer game again? When can I, when does rugby restart and so forth? Whilst those sorts of conversations are taking place across every sector of the economy and with the lead, the senior leaders of those sectors within the economy, they are front of mind, of course, you know, whether you're in, whether you're in an energy company or a consumer goods company or a retail company. The cut through that those sorts of questions have in the world of sport into the kind of the mass media, into the, the you know, the, 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 the commentary that, that takes place every day shows just how important a sector this is across the world um in terms of in terms of what you know so that's sort of point number one i think what's what's interesting from the perspective that i see is you could kind of split it between you could split the view between commercial and non-commercial sport or maybe between elite sport and grassroots sport what you're seeing is that um the impact that this is having on for example on participation and on grassroots you know there's there's been a lot of conversation certainly here in the uk around the legacy of this the positive legacy of this is that you're sort of turning we're turning into a nation of cyclists and runners you know you can't you, you can't really move in the parks of london and the lanes of essex where i live and i'm sure it's the same you know over where where, where david lives without sort of physically running into people who go running, who are now running, or who are now cycling. So I, you know, I think there's a real positive legacy to come of this, which, which touches on David's point about health and wellness and well-being. And the fact that, you know, on every announcement in pretty much every country across Europe, certainly including the UK, you know, where the, where the very kind of uh, august and earnest sort of announcement from the leader of that country comes on that you know lockdowns are starting but don't worry we're still going to give you an hour to go and do some exercise or lockdowns are easing and that means you can go and exercise with a, with a pal it always comes back to this idea that you know somehow they're carving out this opportunity to be able to do exercise and people are responding very positively to that. Now on the other side you've got kind of commercial and elite sport which you know are, ultimately is the entertainment side of the industry and you know uh, and the event-based side and of course the very fact that that, that the, the purpose you know one of the purposes of, of of sport as entertainment is to bring people together to watch sport whether you're doing that as a shared experience remotely on a broadcast channel or whether you're doing it as a shared experience together in a stadium the idea is that sport has this incredible convening power to bring people together and the very fact that we're prevented from coming together physically yeah, in mass at the moment is one of the is you know is creating huge issues for commercial sport but for the grassroots level at the kind of participation level you know my kids can't, my kids football team we're now starting to get back Albeit, you know, we're following the guidelines, social distancing, and so forth. But you know, above and beyond that, the legacy of just people being more fit and active is really interesting. There's also uh, the, I've also sort of observed from the projects that we're doing, quite an interesting geographical split. And it seems to be that the majority of work that we're doing with sport in 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 what might be termed Western Europe the developed markets in Europe is very much around helping sport get back on its feet, both commercially, you know, and physically. Whereas the majority of work that we're doing with sport in the more developing regions of that area. So, you know, in this case, the Middle East and India is more around what you might call business as usual. So, you know, large scale projects for governments in developing markets where they're using sport as a means of engaging their population that's not that's not slowing down you know it it, supporting investors in you know in india in looking for opportunities to invest in sport either in their own market or, or or externally that doesn't appear to have slowed down. So you've got this kind of interesting geographical split as well across the region, as well as the kind of more obvious split between, you know, how does it impact commercial sport, elite sport, sport as entertainment, and how does it impact sport as participation? Interesting.
0: And, and that sort of goes into our next piece, right? You know, athletes nowadays are truly entertainers. and is the passion for the game gone without fans in the stands right it's a different vibe it's a different feeling are they no longer they're no longer entertaining and now they have to go back to like you were saying participation sports and having their parents on the sidelines is really all that they're seeing there how is that affecting sport both you know, I know you guys with soccer. I know here in the U.S., baseball's still in lockdown and they're negotiating. And then hockey is about 12 fans in the stands. What are you seeing there?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. I'm, I'm fascinated about baseball being in lockdown because if ever there was a sport invest, invested for sort of social distancing, it's it, on your side of the pond, it's baseball. And on our side of the pond, it's cricket. But anyway, Um <laughs> So, uh, certainly in terms of participation. Um, so, I, I think I think you made the point there, Ken. It's it's a different experience. You know, uh, we've seen over here in Europe the first the first big move was was the German football league to be played behind closed doors, and for sure it's different. Of course, it's different. I mean, you, you know, watching a game involving Dortmund in the Dortmund stadium. Without you know seventeen thousand fans in packed in in one end, I mean naturally it's a totally an utterly different situation. You know we've got the Premier League starting restarting in England uh, next Wednesday. We've got La Liga starting this evening um, in Spain. It's very different. It's a very different experience. But it, it's arguably you know you you kind of have to. You have to take a take a view, really. It's, but it's it's arguably no less passionate. It's just a different experience of, of of consuming and watching, the sport. But absolutely, sports athletes as entertainers. I mean, you only you only have to look at the memes across social media. You know the way that the vast majority of athletes are are continuing to massively engage their audience. Through, you know, doing cool stuff, silly stuff, clever stuff, educational stuff, whatever on social media. Um, you know, look at you know to to t- you know look at the people playing tennis across the rooftops in Italy. Look at Liv Cook teaching people how to do keepy ups on social media. The list is endless, frankly. Oh. Um, so, athletes as entertainers, that hasn't changed. The majority of their kind of direct to consumer entertainment was always well, always. I didn't think I had to say that about social media, but has traditionally been via social media. So by definition, there's no kind of fans in the stadium. The day job of a Lionel Messi is to play brilliant football for Barcelona in front of a hundred thousand fans. But you know he'll still play brilliant football for Barcelona, but for six months. Or more, there won't be a hundred thousand fans in the stadium, but there'll still be millions of fans watching him on TV. So, I take point, but I'm not. Uh, but I would say it's more about passion, dif- different forms of passion, rather than the passion is gone. I don't know, Dave, David. You, you know, you're a, you're a very active sports fan. What, what do you think to that?
1: Yeah, I think it's. I thought it was fascinating that there was a lot of initial commentary about, um, <clears throat> oh, the, the technology won't be the same or, you know, the German games. But actually, I, th- I think we found a more balanced point of, um, look, it's never going to be the same as, to your point, the, the 70-odd thousand, the 17 in the major stand in, in Dortmund making that amount of noise. But it, I think it was less odd as they started to refine some of the technology and actually some of the fan commentary alongside some of the games has subsequently proved that. Um, I like boxing as well. It was interesting, They fight the MGM Grand, the top-ranked fight on, what, Tuesday night, it actually made it for quite interesting for different reasons is you didn't get the fan reaction, but the visceral noise of, of the con the main contest I thought was, was absolutely fascinating. Um, right the way through to now, you know, horse racing has kind of quite evolved in, in the UK and they're talking about maybe some fans coming back. Now, obviously it's easier to apply social distancing in a, in a wider geographical context, but equally right the way through, I I go back to your original point, Tom, that, you know, lots of people putting value on. I'm going out for a walk. I'm going to ride my bike. Or for me, my son's able to play cricket a week on Friday with a few friends in a contained bubble, under safe, safe experience. Frankly, I'm I'm more interested in that than does the noise next Wednesday in the first Premier League make a difference. I'm just looking forward to seeing the players play play. Um, and I think from a well-being, I think they've been wise to say have five substitutes, not not three. And, and Tom, as a kind of build, you talked about. Um, the geographical dis- differences you're seeing in the markets as well as in sports what's your kind of views about the the medium to longer term impact on sport or do you think it's maybe either too early or is there some geographical things again playing out as you were talking Sorry, you gonna,
2: uh, I, I, I was going to ask ken actually if the if the sound is alright cuz i'm having a few sound issues so i, I, I only got We can hear you, fine. Of your we can hear you fine
1: okay so, so let me let me That's repeat fine. it so, 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 Tom, you mentioned about the geographical differences you're seeing across sport between the corporate side and the the kind of social mass participation. What are you seeing on an industry level about some of the impacts of COVID? And and what are you seeing as maybe some initial thoughts as to short and medium term impacts as we start to come out, hopefully, of, of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, Okay. So I think um, I, I think if we go back to that, that word passion that can refer to, yeah. you know, sport 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 is a passion point and that that isn't changing, and you know it it might be six months it might be nine months down the line, but there will come a point where you know there will be you'll still have eleven players for Newcastle playing eleven players for Liverpool at 3 p.m. on a Saturday in front of 50,000 Geordies. You know, that will happen. Um, so, but what's interesting is that is that both the supply side and the demand side of that passion point of sport is, you know, it's, it's always been changing because it's always changing. The supply side and the demand side is always changing in every sector. So it's, it's, it's been evolving and it's been changing in sport. What the impact of COVID has done is to accelerate those changes so you know whether we're talking about the fan experience and the fact that you know fans of sport demand a more immersive experience in their sport whether that's a more immersive experience as a fan they want a second screen or they want the ability to you know they want the ability to just access a broadband network while they're sitting at their seat in a stadium. You know, they want, they want a more, they want to understand the game more. They want to get deep into the sport. They want the cyclists, you know, power ratings during races and so forth. They're demanding a more immersive experience or indeed, if you're a participant, you're demanding a more immersive experience. You know, you, you, you're measuring yourself on Strava. You're, you know, you're comparing yourself when, when you're out running, you know, the three of us could go out on a cycle ride and compare each other. We could effectively race each other, or we could do it virtually on Zwift, etc. cetera. So it's the idea of the immersive experience. And that's, that's been growing and evolving anyway. The impact of COVID is only going to accelerate that, you know, the, the way that, the way that events are both planned and hosted has all has been evolving for sports events you know it's not just about economic impact it's about social impact it's about the legacy that you're providing it's about delivering a more sustainable event and so on and so forth that was always happening but this is accelerating it partly because <laughs> there aren't any events at the moment so people are having to kind of scramble around the calendar of sport you know it's always been the case that the nfl runs from you know September. Through to the Super Bowl at the end of January, maybe in the first week of february okay it 's always been the case that the Premier League football runs from middle of August until the middle of may it 's always been the case, and you know you question anybody as to why why is it like that, and the answer is because it 's always been like that well the calendar the calendar has changed you know cycling you know a, a sport I know very well through the work i 'm doing there. You know, they've had this kind of hodgepodge of calendar since time immemorial. Tour de France, but the Tour de France has always been run last week in June, first two weeks in July. That ain't happening this year. So, you know, what we're seeing with COVID is, is, is this acceleration of every trend that was happening. You know, uh, I, well, I'm sure we'll come on to talk in more depth about esports. But, you know, esports was big. was a bit of a sideshow to most people Mm. esports is now front and center you know um you know investment money coming into sport that was starting to happen sport was becoming a much more investable asset class you know this is accelerating it so so the impact of covid in the medium to long term i think has been to accelerate um Accelerate trends are happening. I was, talking to the, I was talking to the Director of Communications of the Asian Football Federation uh, earlier this week, and he described it that, you know, in February, we were in 2020, and now in June, we're in 2030, in terms of evolution and pace of change and stuff, which I thought was quite a neat way of doing it. So, so for me, that's the, that's the primary impact, is that things that were going to happen anyway you know are happening much much quicker
1: and Tom do you do you think that um that pace of change will continue and you touched on investment obviously a topic the three of us are all interested in in our in our different guises and we've seen headlines for example about potential private equity investment into Serie A uh investment in rugby and other sports in Europe but but also thinking about in North America Again, lots of investment and, and launches of platforms like ESPN Plus and the Lance Armstrong Pod, and obviously the the amazing success of The Last Dance on on Netflix. Talking about the kind of Jordan era, so are leaders, how what sort of dialogues are you finding with leaders? Is it that mix from change and transformation to I want to push more on the digital side, or is it is it more still in a more short term lens, or everything in between? What, what what's on the leaders' minds that you're talking to? I guess in both pro sports, but also dare I say in maybe some of the more amateur or grassroots as well.
2: I'd be really keen to kind of see any of the trends you're seeing. Yeah. um, So the reality is kind of all of the above, which is not a terribly (laughs) helpful answer, but it's kind of all of the above. So you see there's a lot, there's a lot of sports that have suddenly realized that if they don't get some investment in some form, they ain't going to, not necessarily sports themselves, although yes, sports themselves, but organisations around sport rights holders and so forth, that without investments, they are literally going to go pop. So there's a lot of distressed acquisition conversations. There's mm-hmm. not much distressed acquisitions happening, but there's a lot of distressed acquisition conversations going on. Um, but there's also, I think what this, I think, I think, you know, if you look at the evolution of investment over the last, let's say 10 years, you know, and again, I'm, I'm going to talk from a European perspective here. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciate that the vast majority of the audience can hear it probably on your side of the pond, but from a European perspective, you think, you think about, you know, 10 years ago, people who bought soccer clubs by and large were local Uh, entrepreneurs made good who either had been, you know, grown up supporting that club and, you know, had a bit of an ego and wanted to buy it and own it and run it and, you know, lose all their money that way. Or, um, you know, uh, you know. So that that was kind of that was kind of you know maybe that maybe that's longer ago than ten years ago. But that was the sort of traditional way of investing into sport. And and then you know you you might give a bit. You know, if you're a local entrepreneur made good and you couldn't afford to buy your local football team, you might give a bit to a uh, to to one of the other local community sports teams. But that was you know that was still investment into sport. Then came the rise of the um, Of the kind of, from a from soccer perspective, the the overseas, you know, multi multi millionaire billionaire purchases that were partly vanity projects or, or 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 heavily vanity projects, but they were also doing it for for financial return, and they were doing leverage purchases. They were sort of using the tools of corporates, but ostensibly they were individuals they were extremely rich individuals but they were kind of using the tools and the means and the way of, of doing things that you might associate with sort of sophisticated investors but they were still fundamentally doing it for kind of mm. broadly i mean, sweeping statement for, for kind of ego reasons then then we had the sort of the period of you know countries buying sports teams predominantly football clubs and that's kind of soft power piece and you know um you know there's some obvious there's some obvious things in there but but most sports at some point of their of their history have deployed soft power you only have to look at i mean you mentioned the last dance there david you only have to look Mm. at you know the nb the growth in the nba internationally by fervently leveraging the opportunity let's put it that way presented by michael jordan and some of his peers so you know the soft the soft power has been used since time immemorial really around sport but it sort of came the other way so we saw a lot of developing countries effectively buying sports teams um, for soft power reasons what we see now is we see we're starting to see highly sophisticated investment funds buying into sport because because actually they see the financial possibilities with sport you know the opportunity to deliver significant returns on investment through joining up the fan piece in sport through building uh, you know building monetizable propositions in sports not just in football as well you know cvc have obviously led the way initially in formula one but you know now in rugby and you know apparently elsewhere as well but so so i think going forward if we move that sort of storyline along and look into the future for me the really fascinating piece is not going to be you know who buys who buys football clubs because you know we've kind of seen how that that pans out. but there's a whole world of opportunity out there in other sports, and I, I think there's there's going to become you know I think there's a real opportunity now, but I think we're going to start to see investments from pretty sophisticated investors into you know what might be termed second-tier sports, because number one, you can invest at a, you know low cost. you don't need to you don't need to put as much in. but actually, You know, you think about a number of sports that have significant global fan bases. And if you could invest into that sport now at a very low price, join up that global fan base in a way that enables you to monetize it and commercialize it. You know, you could probably, you know, in a three to five year period, get multiple, multiple return on your investment. You know, and there's a number of interesting sports out there where you could do that.
0: And what about, you know, Tom, we we're chatted a little bit earlier and you brought it up, but what about the rise of esports, right? That's mm. a big world that, you know, if you're not in it, you don't know much about it. But those who are in it and are becoming aware of it, it's sort of in a you know, rocket ship stage. Talk to us a little bit about the rise of esports.
2: Yeah, I mean, so the three of us are wholly the wrong kind of demographic to be really 100%. 100%. having an in-depth discussion Yeah, about yeah, esports if, if we're Where being honest. Your
0: insight, your wisdom, the infamous yeah. wisdom of the
2: market yeah, and, uh,
0: is way above our grade level.
2: Well, my, my, my wisdom is don't ask a nearly 50-year-old as I am now <laughs> about esports. However, oh, right however, that's not the answer you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Um, so no, look, e-sport, esports is a is a fascinating space in the market. First and foremost, um, uh, you know, when I first started looking at this, uh, people kind of just literally were horrified at just the phrase esports. You know, oh. sports is about going into the outside world, kicking the ball around, riding around on your bike, you know, hitting cricket balls, whatever. Okay, sport is not you know, sitting in front of your computer, uh, playing games. Um, but, um, firstly, um, what, 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 you know, I had a conversation with, um, with an owner of an esports franchise quite early on. And he, he said to me, well, uh, oh, sorry. And then secondly, there's this other. Perfect.
0: And, you know, we're coming up here on actually 45 minutes of this and we could probably go for hours and hours, but you know, this has been tremendous insight. I love talking to, you know, talking to individuals who have a different view of it, the business of sport versus just the participation side of sport. So Tom, thank you for being part of this. David, thank you for being part of this because, and we could definitely have a round two of this of post COVID, right? We could do this in six months. and and really see where this goes. But this is, this is an exciting time. I think as much as it's exciting, it's scary, it's anxiety ridden, it's, it's fearful, but you can look at it from two different perspectives and I think we have an ability to look at this at, at a great perspective because it might have hit the reset button for growth in new ways that we don't even know exist. So hopefully we come out of this better than we went into it.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, and, I hope also, you know, and thanks, thanks to invite Ken. And also, I hope we don't lose some of the things we touched on today that, that that real passion, passion for sport as well as on the commercial side. So, yeah, let's pick that up in in a number of months time. And uh, if anyone's listening and they've got views, I'd love to hear them as well, because I, I think this has got, got got great capacity on that well-being side as well as on the investment side and, and everything in between. So, Ken, Tom, thank you for thank you for having us today.
0: Perfect. And if anyone's listening or has questions or comments or concerns, I know we had a little technical difficulty with Tom, but you got the gist of it. Email me at klubin at zrgpartners.com. I'll put the links to everyone that was part of this um, episode so we can reach out, you can connect, you can ask questions to any one of us. So thanks guys for being part of it. Really appreciate it. Go out there, have a great week, keep on trucking and We'll make things great, so have a great week, bye.
1: Thanks both.